The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Jeremiah chapter 21 this evening. We're going to look to a lengthier passage, Jeremiah 21 through the, the first eight verses of Jeremiah 23. Uh, before we dive into the scripture itself, I want to review uh, just a bit about the historical setting. Uh, the book of Jeremiah is written um, during about the last 60 years of the nation of Israel's history in Israel and Jerusalem before the Babylonian captivity, before Jerusalem is wiped out and they're taken um, to Babylon as captives. Uh, God is bringing a word of warning through Jeremiah that this judgment is coming uh, because of the people's sin because of their continued hard-heartedness before the Lord, that though God had sent warning after warning, though God ha- had sent um, prophets, they, they rejected the Word of God. They continued in their wickedness. They had presumption that would just say that God has delivered us in time past. Surely God will deliver us again. And there was no fear of God before their heart, before their eyes. They lived in wickedness, as we'll see tonight even. They lived committing great injustice, idolatry, and thought they would continue on forever in it. And God says, no, your time is coming to an end. Babylon will come and will judge. The word tonight is going to be delivered. Jeremiah speaking to one of the last, or actually the last king of Judah, of the southern kingdom. And he will prophetically look back and mention four kings and has a word of God uh, uh, to them that's recorded for our admonition, for our learning tonight. Now, some wonder, I even wonder, did he give these messages to these kings throughout when they were living? Or is this just prophetically sneaking back upon them? Uh, Bottom line, years have passed since Jeremiah 20 that we looked at last, Jeremiah 20 and Jeremiah 21. And so a large gap of time occurs, and we are now at the very end, some five to ten years, or maybe even sooner, just before the fall of Jerusalem. Just before Babylon will come in for a final time uh, and lay Jerusalem flat and, and wipe it out and take back those that remain alive as captives to Jerusalem. So I want to review... Some of you, it may not be a review, it may be totally new information, but the last five kings of Israel. Go ahead and put that slide up that has these kings listed. So, you may be familiar with Josiah. Josiah was a king that began ruling as a child even, and was the ways of God for the most part. There was a small revival, a return to God that occurred under the, the beginning of his leadership. But towards the end of his life, Israel, Jerusalem, had really returned back to their old ways. And his three sons are listed there on the left below him, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Those are three of his sons. And you can tell just how volatile of a time it was and how the reigns were. The first one to take over was Jehoahaz after the death of Josiah. And he only was king for three months. For three months and he's cut off. Jehoiakim, with an M on the end of it, was his son, he reigned from 609 to 598, so he had an 11-year reign. And Jeremiah 20 was written towards that end of his reign. And then he believed. At the, what brought the end of his reign was he rebelled against Babylon a little bit, picked a fight that he couldn't win, 
and, and Babylon comes into the first minor invasion. They basically come in and they win the battle enough that they remove him as king and they set up, another king is set up in his place. So that then returned to the, I think it's the first son of Josiah, um, Jehoiakim, who reigns for another three months is all. But he bucked against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar came in, and there was a second minor invasion. They sort of defeat the morale of, of Jerusalem, rebelling at all, and, and they let another king reign in his place in submission to Babylon. But they haven't fully wiped it out yet. When Zedekiah takes over, Zedekiah from 597 to 587, 587, he sort of bucks against Babylon, thinks he's big enough to make it on his own without paying tribute. Uh, without being under the, the rule of Babylon, they come in and the final eva- invasion, 586, is when that occurs. They, they wipe out Jerusalem, lay it flat, burn it down, um, kill all that were fighting and many even others that weren't. And those that remained alive are taken back captive. Um, Daniel, if you know the story of Daniel, that first invasion under Jehoiakim, that's when they took some of the you know, most educated of that of Jerusalem. They took those back. Daniel likely um, was taken back captive in that first invasion. Second invasion, they did the same thing. That was likely with Ezekiel. And then that final invasion, everybody was taken back except the poor and those that they would not want to bring back into Babylon were left there in the ruins of Jerusalem. So that's just a bit of history as we're going to see Jeremiah calls out all of these last four kings that come after Josiah, and he's going to give a word from God, uh, an indictment against them because of their wickedness, because of their sin. And that we'll see in chapter 22, but let's sort of set the the setting of it all in in chapter 21. this, This prophetic word is coming when Zedekiah is king. And Zedekiah, think about the ministry of Jeremiah before we even begin this, how long... Jeremiah has been warning the people that God is bringing judgment. Babylon is going to come in and wipe wipe you out because of your sin. And his word has always been, you need to just submit to God in the midst of this. Submit to God and go to Babylon. Don't fight the, the judgment that God is bringing upon you. Just accept it. The first invasion had occurred, the second invasion had occurred, and Jerusalem had not yet been totally annihilated and wiped out. And now we get to Zedekiah, and Zedekiah is still thinking under that form, God's delivered us in time past, surely God's going to deliver us again. Look look to what we read in verse 1, Jeremiah 21. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah said to him, Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, will say, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. So Zedekiah still had this false hope that though, if you read of his life, though he was living in a total disregard to the law of God. 
Though he had embraced the idolatry that, that Jerusalem had long succumbed to, though he was in an injustice and he was taking advantage of the poor and the weak and the strong were oppressing all and that they, they could and he was doing nothing uh, about it, he, he had a total disregard for the Word of God. And yet he wants to think that somehow, some way, surely God is not going to really let us fall. Surely God is still going to do like He did when David defeated Goliath, when God knocked the walls of Jericho down, when the, the Red Sea was parted, when the Jordan was parted. God's going to aim for us at the last minute and deliver us. And He inquires of Jeremiah. The irony of it all, that Jeremiah has been warning for so many years, no judgment's coming because of your sin. Judgment is coming, just accept it and, and be judged and find the grace of God within His judgment. Obey Him even as the judgment comes. Jeremiah is asked by King Zedekiah, surely God's going to deliver us and the, the Babylonians are going to go away, right? And what does Jeremiah say? Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus shall say uh, you say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver the king of Judah, his servants, and the people, and such as are left in the city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life. He shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy on them. That is not the word that Zedekiah was hoping to receive from Jeremiah. Now, undoubtedly, Zedekiah had his other priests and his other prophets who were echoing the sentiments that he desired in his heart that God would surely deliver. Continue doing all that you've done, and as you've done it, keep doing it. And, and God's not really going to judge. God's not really going to let Babylon come in. After all, we're His covenant people. Wouldn't His name be affected by it? Wouldn't the nations make a ridicule of the God of Israel? And God speaks into it, and He says, No, no, the strength even of what He says a shocking nature to it. I'm going to turn your own weapons against you. God says, I'm not going to use my divine power to bring an intervention to deliver you. I am actually power to uh, assure that the Babylonians will overtake and are going to be turned against you. And he says, I'll be in the midst of the city, but I'm going to be fighting for the Babylonians because of the great wickedness of his own people. It's not a good thing when God says, I am against you, and I am going to fight against you. Verse 8. Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. 
He says, I'm going to set before you the way that you're going to live or, or the way that you're going to die. Can you at least obey me in this as this strict judgment's going to be poured out? I've provided a means by which you will live if you listen to me, but if you don't, you will surely die. I set before you the way of life and the way of death, and now he defines it. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Because if you try to stay in the city and fight for it and, and think that I am going to work to deliver you, it is the way of death. You will die. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be as a prize to him. You want to fight against God? The only way that you're going to have any hope at all is surrender. The, the way of life and the way of death is put here before you. And Jeremiah, imagine speaking to King Zedekiah and the people. King Zedekiah who is trying to, to, to get the troops ready to fight. Who's trying to up the morale in Jerusalem to, to be mighty men of valor. To stand against the, the army of Babylon. He's trying to motivate them and, and even give a speech and get a prophecy from, from Jeremiah that God's going to deliver. <laughs> Jeremiah has the words of what could be very rightly conceived as the words of a traitor. But Jeremiah says no. He was a traitor against the people of that day and age, but he was being faithful to God and speaking the truth of God. He says no. The, the way of life and death is before you. If you want to stay and fight, you will die. If you defect, if you surrender, and you go outside the city and just willingly lay down the fight before them, he says you will live and your life will be the prize to you. Why, verse 10, God says, For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. God wins in the end. God is judge, and God will bring judgment. Think a day of reckoning will ever occur. There's many people in life that live as if you will live forever in doing whatever you want to do and in being who every day and age, that's the, that's the culture, right? Self-expression. Be who you are and don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't be what you want to be. And we live as if we can continue in that forever. But it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There will be a day of reckoning. And that day of reckoning has come for the people of God in Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, under the reign of Zedekiah. And Jeremiah's message to them is don't fight it. If you want to survive through this, fall under the hand of God and find even in His judgment, His mercy, your life will be spared. But if you continue to buck against the Word of God and you choose to fight, you will die. Verse 11, And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, thus says the Lord, Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn, so that no one can quench it full of your doings. He says to King Zedekiah and his household, You better get right, because Babylon's coming. Behold, verse 13, I am against you, O inhabitants of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, 
and it shall devour all things around it. If we were to give a main a main admonition, application from this chapter, it simply is when you fight against God, your only hope is to surrender. That is the message that Jeremiah is speaking forth to the people of Jerusalem, to King Zedekiah. God is against you. And when God is against you, you, you don't fight anymore. You, you must simply surrender and hope for His grace, plead for His mercy, even as you fall under His judgment that He has declared will come upon you. I want us to look to chapter 22. In light of that word to Zedekiah, because this flows from that word to Zedekiah. And again, I already mentioned all of those three prior kings uh, are, are, Jeremiah speaks to them in a prophetic way. And I believe he's declaring forth their sins. He's declaring forth the reasoning why this judgment is coming. It's done so for their admonition and learning in that day and age, but it's been preserved and recorded for us tonight. That we may learn also is written of what's been written and recorded and preserved even for us as we reflect upon the ways of God and our ways in light of the ways of God, our sin in light of the righteousness of God. Let's begin. I just want to give you some four simple truths that lessons we learn from this evening. Number one, the way that we treat others realize is an evidence of whether we really know God. The way that we treat others is a reflection, it's an evidence that speaks powerfully to the fact of whether we really know God or whether we don't know God. As we read the next 15 verses, I want you to, and I'll point them out even as we go, notice how much of the the sins that Jeremiah, even that God through Jeremiah is calling his, out, his people uh, out for, has to do with the way that they're treating one another, the way that those in power are treating those who are not in power, those who are weak, those who are poor. Chapter 22 and verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter the gates. Thus says the Lord, what does he say? Execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plunderer out of the hand of the oppressor. Like, stand up for what is right. Stop letting uh, the, the uh, weak get taken advantage of. The oppressor take advantage of, of those that are being plundered. He says, do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. That the way that you're treating one another, the way that you're standing by while injustices are being committed, the way you even are committing those injustices, gives great evidence that you don't know God at all. For if you indeed do this thing, then I'll enter the gates of this house, uh, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and, and the people, kings, who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Because your life will be spared if you get right now. Judgment's still coming, but it won't be as bad as if you continue in this wickedness. For thus says the Lord, verse 6, to the house of the king of Judah, 
You were Gilead to me and the head of Lebanon. Those were, those were beautiful high mountain places. Uh, it's the word of God speaking of how precious His people were to Him. He says, Yet surely I will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you and everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. Verse 8, And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done, uh, done so to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Because of their sin and their idolatry. Verse 11, we'll skip down to. It says, For, uh, for thus says the word of the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father. Um, Shalom is another name um, for, let me get this right. Shalom is King Jehoahaz. So some of these kings went by other names, and Shalom is actually an ironic name given to him by Jeremiah because his nickname also was Shalom, they would call him, which means peace. And Shalom uh, means warfare, means retribution. Let's skip down. I've got a lot that we're reading, and I want to skip a little bit just for sake of time. Verse 13, the word that came to him, Woe to him who builds houses. Um, by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? So he, he's accusing this king of building a grand palace and even not paying the laborers, doing it out of the power that he had as king. And it was a time even of great instability in the nation of Jerusalem. Those first, that first invasion had already occurred. The second invasion had occurred. And so it was a time of great instability. And yet, great injustices were still being committed. And God saw those injustices. And God is bringing a judgment down upon them because of it. And now we get to the end of verse 15, and he says, Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? He's speaking to Josiah here. Didn't Josiah rule and reign as a king just as you're ruling and reigning? Only he didn't do the same wicked things that you're doing. He says, Then it was well with him. God was not angry with the way that he was living. He says, He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well, was not this knowing me, says the Lord. Look at that again. God is saying that Josiah judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and it was well with him because of that. He, he ate and he drank as a king, but he did justice and he did righteousness, and that's the reason why it was well with him. He was following the ways of God in his life. If you're here and you think that you can be right with God and treat others with and treat others poorly and scheme and manipulate others and, and be unfair and lie and cheat and slander and all the rest, you realize that gives strong, strong evidence you don't know God. You don't know Him at all. And someday God will God will make right all that you've done that's wrong. God is a God of justice. I'm Get in trouble. I'm always weary of the business guy that has. I'm a Christian. 
I think you need to be weary of that. If that's the if that's what has to be written on a van as he drives by. None of you in here have that written on your van, I hope. I'm gonna get in a lot of trouble if you do. But but often I have found in my life the person that has to question and says, Trust me, you can trust me, I'm a Christian sometimes uh, is is really just manipulating a person. And sometimes is the one that is the furthest person from the one that you can actually trust. I don't want you to have to ride it on your van. I ought to know it by the way that you do your business. I ought to know it by the way that you treat people and by the honest integrity and character of your life. You realize the way you treat people is a reflection of whether you truly are of God or are not. Read the epistle of 1 John. We don't have time tonight. But how you treat one another speaks a lot to the fact of whether you really know God or not. And God is saying to um, King Jehoahaz, the way you treat people gives evidence you don't know the Lord. It's evidenced by your life. Your father knew the Lord. Life showed it. But you do not. Notice secondly, verses 18 through 21 in particular, the prosperity of life can often deafen us God. Look to verse, we'll just skip down to verse 21. So this is a word to Jehoiakim we see in verse 18. And in verse 21, look at what it says. It says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. If you highlight and underline in your Bible, that's a good one to highlight and underline. The, the first one would be ver, uh, verse 16, that he judged the cause of the wealth. It was well with him and this, was not this knowing me? Uh, underline is verse 21. God says, Jehoiakim, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. I believe that is a word that is an indictment against so many in our day. God has spoken, but in our prosperity, we can be so deaf to His Word. You look around and you see it all over. You see it in your own life even, that in time it's easy to God. It's easy to think that you are capable in and of yourself of doing what you have in your life according to your own set of rules and power and, and ability. That's what riches deceive us into thinking. And riches keep you busy. A lot of people with prosperity have schedules to keep and, and businesses even that they're running. And, and it's easy to think and, and um, I've got life figured out. I think you've got it all figured out. Your ears turn off to the Word of God. And you know that in times of hardship, we'll talk about this in the next point, that's often when we actually get right with the Lord, when God actually, uh, when we hear the Word of God. There's a proverb that I want you to write down. I'm going to read it to you and ask you to read it even this week. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. You know, we love the prayer of Jabez where Jabez prays, God, expand my boundaries that I can you know, be a blessing to others even. We, there's, there's a good principle in that. It's not wrong to pray that God would that we may increase His glory. But I found that would be a tempting prayer in my own heart. Maybe it's not for you, but many that have prayed that prayer desire riches more than they really desire God and His glory. I think a more fitting prayer for our hearts is found... This prayer of Agar in Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9, where it's, he writes, he says, Two things, God, I request of you, deprive me not 
of them before I die. One removed falsehood and lies far from me. Secondly, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is poor? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What a prayer of wisdom. God, would you not give me so much that I forget how much I need you? Don't make me so prosperous that I get deathered in my prosperity and then and then say, who is the Lord? I don't need the Lord. i got everything figured out. Everything's great and comfortable and safe and secure in my life. That's American Christianity 101. And he also says, Lord, don't make me so poor that, that I have to steal and profane your name and to break your commandments even to, to try to provide for myself in a lack of faith. He says, keep me in that good middle. Don't let me get so rich that I... Forget you or so poor that I forsake you. Give me what is a daily, my, my daily bread. Prosperity can deafen us to the Word of God. Jehoi- uh, Jehoiakim was deafened to the Word of God because of his prosperity. Notice, thirdly, God sometimes takes away our prosperity so that we'll actually listen to Him. The next verse there, verse 22, it says, The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. God's bringing judgment. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. Sometimes God has to remove the things that we find our security. Shake us up a little bit in order that we might finally come to realize the sin that we're involved in and just how much we need Him, how much we need His grace, and how much we need His mercy. Ultimately, for those that belong, God is doing that work in them in the big picture. There's a remnant that is going to return to Jerusalem. There's a remnant that returns to the law of the Lord, that returns to a right worship of God. God is at work, even in this judgment, to draw His people back to self. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as sons. It says, My son, do not des- uh, despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not... If you were without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but He for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is bringing a judgment upon His people, and He's doing it to awaken them to just how bad they got before Him, just how wicked they had gotten before Him. And He's pouring this out upon them. And Jeremiah's word is, don't buck it, don't fight it, 
go, go and submit to it, and God is going to lead us through it, and, and they're going to ultimately learn through this judgment God is pouring out upon them. They're going to be restored even ultimately through this judgment that they are going to be uh, going through. C.S. Lewis wrote once that he said, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but He shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Prosperity can deaf the Word of God. You realize pain and suffering God uses to open up our ears so that we can really hear again because we've been so blinded and deceived by our prosperity. He sometimes strips that away. He sometimes strips our health away. He sometimes... Let's cancer come. He sometimes permits an, uh, an unexpected accident in our perspective to occur, but, but it's all, uh, every pain and every suffering under the, 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 the sovereign hand of a gracious God that serves a purpose. He is seeking to sometimes uh, awaken us out of our sin. If that's the condition of our hearts and we're, we're dead and, or, or, or stuck in sin, deafened by sin, God uses pain. God uses suffering. Those who God is chastising His people through this Babylonian captivity. Notice lastly and fourthly, finally, that though all earthly kings have failed, that's where we'll end chapter 22, though all failed, God will raise up a king who will never fail. The chapter ends with a message to Coniah, which is the nickname of uh, Jeconiah, which is of the king, who was the son of Joy, uh, Jehoiakim, who, if we could go back to our chart, that I need to get it right, because I don't get all these ones right either. Uh, Jehoiakim is the one with the N at the end of it. So Jehoiakim uh, is the one to whom this word is written we're not going to read it all again for sake of time. I know we've got a lot that we've read, but he basically says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Uh, the Chaldeans, you're going to die in what is going to come. And it says, O earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. First, in light of the last point, honestly, that could fit under the third one. It's happening to awaken the deaf, deafness of Israel. And even their example awaken our deafness tonight. Like we have this recorded for our admonition that, that even by seeing what happens to them, our, our ears might be open to understand, to hear, or hear, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall be sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, if you know the Davidic covenant, where God told David there will always be an heir of yours who will sit on the throne of David, who will have a kingdom, this verse poses quite a difficulty because the, the reign of the kings of Judah comes to an end with this curse. Your descendants are cut off. That a curse has been brought upon you. You will not have one sitting on the throne of David any longer. You come all the way down to the Christ, the Messiah. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to mention it briefly in passing. And we actually read in Matthew, Jesus, and guess who is it? Jehoiakim, Coniah, who this, whom this curse was given to. 
the royal lineage of the Messiah, traced by Matthew, goes through Jehoiakim. Now, was Jesus the son of Joseph? (laughs) He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so there is a royal lineage through his stepfather, through the lineage of David. But Luke, however, traces a genealogy. If you've ever wondered, why does Matthew's genealogy read differently than Luke's genealogy? Luke traces not the royal lineage of Christ, but traces the bloodlines, Christ, through his mother, through Mary. And Mary's lineage traces all the way outside of the kings of Judah to the brother of Solomon, to Nathan, the son of David. And so the prophetic word of this curse and of the coming of the Messiah uh, happens even as the Old Testament unfolds and ends with the kings of Judah having this great curse upon them. And I think there's no coincidence that after we find all of the failure of the earthly kings, chapter 23, of their their ruin, he says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. All of these ones that were supposed to be the ones leading the people to God, leading before the people as God would have them to lead. He says, all of these shepherds have destroyed and shattered this sheep, says the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I'll bring them back, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall not uh, fear any more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. And now in verse 5, Behold, the days are Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which He will be called the Lord our Righteousness. Is that all through the Old Testament what we find is not in us. It is not of man to determine His ways. That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That even the great kings of Israel and the great kings of Judah validate over and over and over again they're not it. David even, and all the glory and and goodness that David was, a man after God's own heart. You know the story of Bathsheba, don't you? Solomon and all of his wisdom and the glory of his kingdom. Yet, you know, the many concubines and wives and even idolatry that his life would end in. And then from there, and those two great kings, a decline, a decay of human depravity revealing itself over and over and over and over again that the answer is not in these but God says there is one and we look back and we say there is one who is coming and he will be the king who is the righteous branch of David he will be that title given the Lord our righteousness from the very beginning it's not It's not ever been that God was working salvation by the works of His people and that 
it was by their their own righteousness that they were saved in the Old Testament. No, they, they were all it's all leading up to responding in faith to the promises of God that, that this this king is coming. That the Lord our righteousness is coming. That He will be the one who will become righteousness for us. That He will be the one who will rule and reign with with righteousness in the earth as it says. And He will be the one in whom all of Judah will be saved and all of Israel will dwell safely in Him because of Him. It wasn't in the kings of Judah. It was in the one who would come who would be called Jesus. Who would become the Lord our righteousness cannot help but hear the words of Paul echoing that title in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In Him. When your fight is against God, your only hope is to surrender. If you're here tonight and you think that you can continue on in your sin living as if you're going to live forever, doing whatever you want forever, realize the day of reckoning is coming. And I pray that that would awaken you. Maybe God's been working in your life and brought some pain and suffering to awaken your deaf ear to hear a word of God because you've been trying to do it your way. And let me ask you, how's that working out? It doesn't work out very well, even in this life, because sin has consequences. Can I tell you, there is a true King. There is one who truly is our Lord and Savior. God has raised Him from the grave. He's validated. He died upon a cross for your sins, was buried and raised again. And that He is the Lord, our righteousness. If you want a life that's forgiven, you want a life that's meaningful and purpose, you purposeful, you want a life that's not screwed up and messed up, that's on the right path, if you want eternal life, if you want to stand before God and be justified someday, you want to stand before God and make it into heaven because He says, you know, your sins are forgiven. It's not in and of you, and it's not in and of any earthly king. It's in and of Christ and Christ alone. He is the Lord our righteousness. So as we close, I want to ask, have you come to Christ? Have you believed upon Him as Lord and Savior? If you haven't, you need to. If you have, you need to just be reminded tonight of the grace in which you stand. That Christ is our King. He is my righteousness. I don't have to work to get to heaven. By God's grace, He has raised Him up. And He is the righteousness that has clothed me. He is the reason I'm forgiven and saved and redeemed. And that's true of every one of us that's forgiven that's redeemed tonight. Heavenly Father, we come to You and Lord, I pray that You would help every believer in here be reminded of who Christ is to us. Lord, of our position in Him. That He is the reason that we're saved. That He is the reason we will be saved on that day of judgment. I know so often Satan can throw our failures in our face and even our present sin doubt our salvation, make us doubt our standing before You. Um, Lord, we need to confess sin. We need to get it right with You, but we need to always remember Jesus and what He did for us. He is the Lord our righteousness, and we are safe and secure in Him. Lord, if there's anybody in here that's never come to Him, has believed upon Him as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would tonight. If there's anybody in here that You have them chastising, Lord, you 
need to repent and get right with you, I pray that tonight they would do that. They would surrender to you in this invitation. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.